You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned in to another stormy episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and joining us, as always, the twice-nominated, not-yet-consummated, best MMA journalist in the world, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, Ben Folks, ladies and gentlemen. Ben, do you think that there's any chance this year that you beat out Helwani for this award? Well, first of all, to all the people who are considering voting for Ariel Helwani, I heard he wasn't even born in the United States. Oh, wow. This could Uh, be a bombshell. Yeah. I mean, why won't he release his birth certificate? That's what I want to know. Yeah, or his college records from... Yeah. Uh, Syracuse. Yeah, Syracuse. Syracuse. That's right. He did go to Syracuse. Yeah. Why won't he release his college records? I'm just saying. You know, there are are questions that need to be asked. Uh, Do I think I can beat Helwani, who has, I think, literally 10 times as many Twitter followers as I do... Um, that he can command to do his bidding? No. However, I will say that if you are hearing the sound of my voice on the CME podcast and you do not vote for my employers at MMA Junkie as the best media source, uh, you're dead to me. You're just dead to me. So there's that. Well, two things about that. First, I'm surprised that the Co-Main Event podcast and CoMainEvent.com did not get a nomination for best media source. Yeah. Bias. Number two, mainstream media. What if the co-main event podcast mobilizes its base around winning you this award? Because I know you went to the ceremony last year, did not win. I believe your wife got drunk and maybe said some weird stuff to John Jones. Is that accurate? You know, that's that's the Reader's Digest version of what happened. But I can't say that that is not accurate. No, I, I mean, more or less. Yeah, that's what happened. So everyone get out and vote this year for uh, Ben Folks for Best MMA Journalist of the World. Uh, who, who puts this award show on? I think Fighters Only in conjunction with some other people. They so do, do we it. know where people can go to vote? or uh, There's a website. You can th- use the fucking Google. You can figure it out. So yeah, use Maybe the... we'll put something on the website if Chad will get off his ass. No, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, there was some confusion, Ben, last week. Uh, some, some listeners had been contacting us to ask why we never do five-round episodes. Uh, I responded by saying I thought we had done a five-round episode at least once in the past. You did not believe so. Uh, because my memory is even worse than yours, I took your word for it. Yeah. I allowed you to, to talk me out of my convictions and... Uh, Turns out we actually have done yeah. <laughs> a five-round episode at least once in the past. But more importantly than that, just to clear up any further confusion, we decided that this week we're going to the championship rounds. That's right. And we're mixing up the format a little bit because I know you thought, hey, what are these guys going to have to talk about? There was no big event this past weekend, uh, no major event this coming weekend. What the hell is the CME podcast going to pull out of its hat? Uh, but no, we're going five rounds, and uh, we decided since we get so much great listener mail, some of those rounds are going to include you, the listeners, who ask us great questions, thought-provoking questions even. That's right. So uh, this week, as we go five rounds, um, in round number one, we will do a listener mail round. We're going to hear from uh, from some of you who who wrote in this week to ask us questions and send comments, because frankly... You came pretty strong. Uh, In round number two, we're going to talk about the independent mixed martial arts scene and whether or not it even makes any sense anymore to start a small uh, MMA promotion with with the uh, aspirations of someday competing with the big boys or the big boy, 
I suppose, yes. as it is more accurately said these days. Uh, in round number three, Dana White, the UFC president, said that at this point it is only a matter of time before we see a women's division in the octagon. He says it's, quote, absolutely going to happen. Uh, it seems to me like for the last few months we, we all sort of knew that, but everybody seems to be kind of making a big deal out of it this week, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, round <laughs> really number, selling it, man. <laughs> in round number four, uh, a rematch between Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez is now official. Uh, and with Alistair Overeem waiting in the wings and Daniel Cormier still cooling his heels over in Strike Force, we're going to take a look at the immediate future of the heavyweight division. And in round number five, you, the listener, once again will take us home with even more listener mail because we got, we got a lot of good ones this week. We're bookending that shit. Yeah, so suffice it to say, the, uh, the show is jam-packed today with all kinds of goodness. So, you know, probably no point in us stringing out this intro any longer. Yeah, let's uh, around. Let's just go ahead into round number one right now. Boom. Round one. Ben. No reason to beat around the bush. Let's just get started. Should we? Yeah, do it, man. Do it. First question this week comes from Zach Thoreau, who asks, If Dana White walked up to you and offered you his job, would you take it? If so, what changes would you make to the UFC? Now, I have two additional questions about this. Number one, would I have to move to Las Vegas? And (laughs) And number two... Would I get paid the kind of money that currently allows Dana White to go to the Palms Casino and tip people $10,000? <laughs> well, he's not doing that anymore because they cut his credit line, according to the report in the Las Vegas Review Journal. Uh, okay, for the, the premise of this discussion, I say the answer is yes. You would have to, to move to Las Vegas and presumably maintain the kind of wacky travel schedule that Dana White has. But you would have a private jet like he has. Okay. Um, and two, you would make enough money to, to drop serious tips on people uh, the way Dana White does. All that stuff would be the same. And uh, you didn't ask this, but my first question was, is it a trap? It sounds like a trap. <laughs> it does. I mean, suffice it to say that at this point, I don't need, I don't need Dana White's job. I just need one of those tips, man. <laughs> I just need one of those $10,000 tips. He's changing people's lives, they say, <laughs> yeah. over at the Palms. Or yeah, was no, hey, before they cut his credit line in half. One of those tips would go pretty far in Missoula, Montana. That's true. And, you know, I guess you bring up a good point about the private jets. I would probably still try to make my primary residence here in the Garden City, the great city, city of Missoula, Montana and sort of commute back and forth between here and Las Vegas and Rio or wherever the fuck I had to go (laughs) every week. Um, As for what changes I would make, I guess if I'm the UFC president, I would probably cut like the bottom third of the roster and reduce the number of shows by about 10%. You a cold-hearted son of a bitch. Well, I'm Dana White at this point. So, (laughs) hey, man, all bets are off. Am I right? Well, I don't even go that far. When I hear the, the first part of the question, he walks up and offers me his job. Do I take it? No. Oh, you're, no. you're out. It's, I don't want that job. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, I know that we're all like, hey, you know, Dana White's a rich and powerful dude who flies around in jets and hangs out with Olivia Munn and shit like that. But no, I, I do not want that job. That job seems like it would kill a normal person uh, through just stress and lack of sleep uh, inside of six weeks. I don't want that job. I'm pretty happy with the job I have. Uh, you know, for the same reason that whenever anybody wants to be to run for president of the United States, my first question is always, why? Why would you, why would you want that? 
Well, they run for president because their dad was the governor of Michigan, <laughs> right? Sometimes. Sometimes that yeah. is how it goes. Now that you bring it up, I, I suppose the more honest answer would be no, that I don't want that job. But if I would have said that, then we wouldn't have really had a very good answer to Zach Thoreau's question. Yeah, but I feel like we have to be honest that uh, we all can give Dana White some shit and say, here's what I'd do differently. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't even want to wouldn't even want to be in those shoes, nice as they are, as expensive as they are, even though you could sell those shoes and put your daughter through college, probably. Question number two this week comes from Justin Vogan, who asks, with November approaching, the UFC has five cards left for the year. I'm not including fuel TV shit. <laughs> okay. We have the return of GSP, the most promising and exciting Fox card, back-to-back nights of FX fun and UFC 155, which is stacked to the fucking gills. My question, <laughs> I like this guy. Yeah. My, my question is, if these events actually happen the way that they're supposed to, can these fight cards salvage a year that has been bludgeoned by the injury bug and watered down by too many events? Can these remaining cards make the fight fans forget about the 149s, the 151s, lopsided TE ratios, and old dinosaurs? Could these <laughs> cards change our opinion about the year 2012 in MMA? Or even if things do go as planned, would it not be enough to make up for what was a pretty mediocre year? First of all, I know Vitor Belfort is the young dinosaur. Who's the old dinosaur? Someone even older than Vitor Belfort. <laughs> okay. Like Vanderlei Silva all right, is all right. the old dinosaur. Fine. I, even though Vanderlei may be younger than Vitor. Yeah, he probably I is. Know. I don't know. Uh, okay. That's a good question because if you look at what we have from now until the end of the year, if nothing terrible happens, uh, and you're almost conditioned to think that it will at this point, but if, if that all holds together, it's going to be a pretty, pretty sweet little run there. For sure. I don't think that it's going to change the way we look back on this year. I think we'll, even if that holds together we'll still look back at 2012 and say that was a rough year for the UFC. Uh, we, we're not going to just completely forget all that other stuff. But I do think it will serve as evidence that as long as you know unforeseeable, uh, unavoidable bad shit doesn't happen to them, it will prove that the UFC can still put on an awesome product pretty consistently. Yeah, it would be good to get some momentum at least, I guess, heading yeah. into 2013. But if we if we just take the last three or four months of this year and and call it a success, then I feel like we become too much like MMA fight judges, and, and you know whatever <laughs> happens at the very end of the round is is yeah. probably who won it. Yeah, you know? I saw a takedown in the last twenty seconds because so. Judo Jean can't remember the beginning of the round, so you know might as well score. <laughs> but you lay off who, Judo Jean, <laughs> guy who took the, who got the takedown right there at the end of the round. Um, yeah, I think it would be great for them to get some some good momentum headed towards the end of the year and. Uh, you know, Justin is right that there are some some stacked cards headed our stacked way. Stacked to the fucking gills. Stacked to the fucking gills. But uh, man, I think you're right, Ben. In that in that this has not been the the greatest year for the UFC, and I feel like we would be doing everyone sort of a disservice if we suddenly tried to pretend like it was a great year because they had a, a good final quarter. Yeah. Um, but it as would tempting and as widespread as I predict that storyline yeah. may be. But it would at least allow the UFC to head into 2013, point at the last few months of 2012 and say, see, as long as motherfuckers will stay off motorcycles and, you know, quit getting themselves hurt and tearing out their knees and, and uh, blowing up their testosterone ratios and we can, the fights that we make can stay that way, things will be okay. Uh, and that, you know, if, if that turns out to be the way that, that the last few months go, that'll be a strong argument. Third question this week comes from Anonymous. Which what? makes it sound what? spooky, right? Well, it is. This is like the Halloween 
uh, week episode, I For guess. For all we know, this could be anonymous, the infamous cabal of internet hackers. For all we know, it could be a ghost. A ghost could have sent this question in. That's possible. Yeah. Uh, although you could say that about any of the questions. <laughs> as long as ghosts are provided with email access, they could email the podcast. Well, I feel like there's more sleuthing to be done here, but go on and read the question. Anonymous sends to us a multiple choice question. Hmm. The question is, there are a variety of conce- concepts and premises in the fight game. Well, we're off to a great start here, Anonymous. Uh, sport- I know why they, they didn't want to put their name on this already. <laughs> Sporting events are complex, and we often simplify things greatly to make them understandable and create narrative. However, if a set of statements or concepts are inconsistent, one or more of these statements should be eliminated from being, for being untrue to retain some coherence. Jesus fucking Christ, where is this going? Uh, from the following list, which of these do you wish to believe true? Huh. And Interesting which phrasing. do you reject as promoter horseshit? <laughs> here, here are, the, here are the, uh, the choices. The first one, there is such a thing as a quote-unquote number one contender. Okay. Second one. Top 10 lists reflect actual linear rankings. And then in parentheses, it says MMA math. Third, quote unquote, in the mix, meaning that there is a set of top tier fighters in any given division. And the fourth example, styles make fights. Okay. You, did you remember them all? Because I think so, kind of. I'm going to say promoter horseshit. Uh, well, and I don't even think this is promoter horseshit. It's just general like MMA and the MMA media feeds into this particular brand of horseshit. Top 10 rankings. Right. Yeah, for sure. We, we discussed that on the very first episode of this podcast and our solemn vow yeah. to not really talk about top 10 lists or rankings as, you know, as much as we could avoid it. Um, meaningless. They don't mean anything for yeah. starters. And it's an awfully blunt, blunt tool to try to uh, make any kind of sense out of this sport. Now, number one contenders, the, the idea that there is such thing as a number one contender. Yeah. I would have said, you know, if you'd asked me six months or a year ago, I would have said that I would have leaned more toward I believe that to be true. Well, you should <laughs> believe that to be true, uh-huh. right? It just so happens that the last six months or so, certain people have taken a sledgehammer to that idea. Right. And so now that that idea started to seem like just horseshit. Like the number one contender thing is a u- thing that... Uh, the UFC or, or promoters can use to promote a fight and, and to sell a fight. Say, hey, hey, this isn't a title fight, but it's a number one contender fight. Therefore, it's important enough for you to pay attention. Uh, but then when the winner of that fight does not get the next shot at the title or even maybe the shot at the title after that, uh, it kind of weakens that argument. So that's starting to seem like horseshit. What about in the mix? Do you believe that there is a set of top tier fighters in any given division? I would say yes. Yeah, I mean, I think in the mix, that phrase used by Dana White when he doesn't want to say, he doesn't want to pin himself down on how far a guy might be from a title shot. It's just, sure, he's in the mix. Like, you know, which is just like, he has not completely fucked up yet. Like, we're not, we're not just taking a Sharpie and drawing a black line through his name. I feel like there's almost more utility in that idea than, say, top 10 lists. Yeah. Because then at least, you, as a promoter, you have options, a number of different guys who could be in this, like, top-tier pod of fighters who could then, be, you know, become the number one contender yeah. through some sort of linear and cohesive process of elimination. Uh, styles make fights. True. True. Very true. All right. Let's go on to the, to the, to the last question for this round which comes from Matthew Larkin. He asks, do you think the MMA fan of today, 
who is presented with a with fairly frequent servings of MMA goodness in comparison to the bi-monthly offerings that were the that were the norm in pre-2005 is benefiting more from the higher probability of good fights while the hype and anticipation that was normally felt about every card before the 0506 year mark is absent more often than not. Huh, okay, that was kind of complicated. Uh yes. I think Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if you're a fan of the sport, it's good that there that the more of the product is available. But I do think that that back in the olden times, when uh, when we would get one pay per view a month tops, I do feel like a those pay per view shows stood a better chance to be better shows, or at least to be better look better on paper. Like you would yeah. get four or five fights full of guys that you wanted to see fight. Yeah. Which when you pay fifty four ninety nine for a pay per view as we do now, probably should be the norm. Yeah. I think it was cheaper back then too. It was probably like forty bucks. Yeah. And then it'd be exciting. We'd talk about it for a long time, and then I'd show up at your apartment with a cheese dip, and your girlfriend at the time would be kind of bitchy. Wow. Yeah. Bringing back bad memories. <laughs> anyway, uh, th- that's going to probably do it for round number one. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started with round number two right now. Round two. Chad, this weekend, November 3rd, marks the debut of the World Series of Fighting, a new MMA promotion springing up. Uh, Maybe not the best idea for the World Series of Fighting to to debut on uh, the same week that the actual World Series of Baseball just ended. Uh, seems like maybe a search engine problem there, but gives us an opportunity to discuss in this current MMA climate, can you start up a new MMA organization? I mean, we've seen Bellator still around, uh, Invictus seems to be doing pretty well. Now the World Series of Fighting wants to throw its hat in the ring. Can you do this now, or is it just a way to lose a bunch of money? I have an introductory question. Okay. Is there a series involved in the World Series of Fighting? What do you mean? I mean, they they plan to hold more events, right? But it's we're not dealing with like a Bellator type situation where they're like running a tournament, or we're going to do like best of seven. No, I, I don't think so. I think that there was some talk of like them doing some kind of tournament thing, but uh, I don't think so. They did say though that if everything goes well with this event, they would like to hold eight to twelve events next year. Wow. Um, that does sound like a series, even though yeah. perhaps if there is no actual series, then I don't know if World Series of Fighting seems like the greatest name. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of problems there. But uh, However, of the two uh, uh, you know, uh, mentionable independent mixed martial arts shows that are coming this weekend, I would say I would give the nod to World Series of Fighting as the better name over resurrection fighting alliance four yeah which is also this weekend and, and there's no there's no uh extreme in the name anywhere i like that no just resurrection which kind of makes you sound like uh christian fight league or like zombies are fighting right. i guess yeah well the thing i wonder is uh with the ufc being such the dominant number one uh and there was a quote when uh the World Series of Fighting, because the World Series of Fighting has some, some pretty decent names on there. Guys, yeah, you both, know. both these cards do, actually. Uh, you know, you got Andre Arlovsky on there. You got Anthony Johnson. You got Miguel Torres. Uh, but well, well, you got your guy. Your guy, Gerald Harris. My guy, Gerald Harris, yeah. Ben uh, Folks, president of the Gerald Harris fan club. Here we go. From what I understand. Here we go. Uh, 
But here's, I think, a telling quote from Anthony Johnson about the World Series of Fight when people asked, you know, because the UFC did not necessarily slam the door shut on the idea of bringing him back. And so we have to ask the question, is he just killing time and trying to win a few fights and keep his name in the news until he can re-sign with the UFC? He said, quote, I just think this is going to be the next best thing around right now, and I'm just glad to be a part of it. Now, I guess that's honest of him to say, like, you know, he's not saying, like, this is going to take over. This the World Series of Fighting will be the the only MMA organization that matters. It's going to be bigger than the NFL. Yeah, so you appreciate that, but it does seem like that's what the battle is for right now. Who is going to be the next best thing? Uh, and I wonder, can you can you start up an organization and have a plausible chance uh, of sticking around if you don't have if you're not the arena football in some way yeah. to the NFL? Like if yeah. you don't have some kind of hook, like Bellator's the tournaments, Invicta is all female. Uh, do you need to be able to say, hey, we're like those guys, but here's why we're different? Yeah, that was the question you asked me at the beginning, and I, I circumvented it a little bit. But uh, I guess the the obvious answer that you want to give right off the top is no, just because the UFC brand seems so strong at right. this point. They've withstood, uh, you know, a, a lot of different challengers, f- you know, in a in a time when it seemed slightly more possible to be a competitor. You know what I mean? Like when Affliction was around, it seemed like at least a possibility that Affliction could become a legitimate contender to the to the UFC until it turned out they were paying Tim Sylvia eight hundred grand or whatever. <laughs> um, but I mean, but just to, to, to when you look at it a little deeper, it seems like there's enough talent out there to support at least one additional, I guess, kind of runner up fight league. Just because, then, as I mean, you mentioned, there are these guys that we've heard of on. World Series of Fighting, and on Resurrection, there are some guys we've also heard of. They've got Efren Escudero this weekend, Tyson Griffin, Marcio Cruz, and they've got a couple of, uh, I guess you would call the leading prospects, you know, Steve Mako at heavyweight and uh, Lance Palmer, who I believe is a featherweight. Well, see, but there's the problem, is that you have to split your energy there between guys who were in the UFC and are not anymore for one reason or another, you know, not just because, hey, their contracts were up and they thought they could do better elsewhere. You know, all of those guys would probably still like to be in the UFC, ideally. Or the dudes who are coming up through the ranks who see this as a stepping stone to the UFC, regardless of whether they will admit it in public or not. Uh, so that presents a problem. Also, yeah. the World Series of Fighting, uh, it's like, how do you, how are you going to make money and stick around? For one thing, they're, they're holding the show in Las Vegas. You know, good fight town, but... Las Vegas sees plenty of MMA action. If you're a fight fan in Las Vegas, uh, or any you know within driving distance of Las Vegas, aren't you just kind of sitting around going, "Yeah, I think I'll save my money for UFC 155, which is going to be you know I think packed to the fucking gills." Was the term thrown around earlier? Uh, also, okay, they got a TV deal, right? They're on NBC Sports, the the former Versus, mm-hmm. also known as Versus, for those uh, the of former you outdoor. Remember Life that halcyon days of the WEC. Yeah, we saw how that went for the WEC, trying to get people to watch on Versus. You go to the NBC Sports website to uh-huh. see what kind of push. Well, uh, I used to work for the NBC Sports I, I website, know you did. so you know I visit it every day. Yeah, of course you do. In that case, you know what the top MMA headline. On in on the MMA section of the NBC Sports website is right now as of this recording. Then Don Fry wins Ultimate Ultimate. <laughs> Close top headline right now on NBC Sports website: Maynard wins, but quote fight sucked. That's from the Clay Guida Gray Maynard fight in June. <laughs> oh wow! Other headlines: Uh huh. Baral beats Faber for nineteenth straight win. 
Dos Santos keeps UFC heavyweight title, and UFC star Jones charged with DWI. That, if you'll recall, was a topic we discussed on the very first CME ever, 24 episodes ago. 24 weeks ago. So it's almost as if no one bothered to tell NBCSports.com that there is a... An MMA show on NBC Sports if Network. If you try and find anything on their website, if you type in, in their little like search bar, a World Series of Fighting, first you get a bunch of links to articles about the actual World Series, um, and then you get links to like Sheridog articles and MMA Weekly articles about the World Series of Fighting. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking for a huge TV partner push there, doesn't seem like doesn't they're going to get it. Doesn't seem like right you're going to get it. So it's like, how, how can you stick around long enough to gain a foothold? Yeah, and Resurrection Fighting Alliance, which is also this weekend, also from Las Vegas, and oddly enough, at the Texas Station Casino, which is owned by the Fertitas, uh, it will be on Access TV, the former former, HDNet. God, why do all these TV companies keep changing their names? It makes it so hard. And HDNet, or Access, they'll just put on anybody's. Like, if you and I had Tank Abbott and Scott Ferrazzo 3... Here in the backyard. Yeah. At, I'm going to have to rake some Folks. leaves first, but uh, <laughs> they would put it on access. Yeah. We could get that on access. Just you and me with a couple of mics. Yeah. A couple of cans of PBR you know, watching Tank and Scott fight. Access is the go to channel to see the kind of events where, like, the canvas is all, like, not stretched tight and all loose right. and bushy, and it looks like dudes are fighting on a slip and slide. It may or may not be raining. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, well, you talked about this earlier, like, that the smaller event kind of needs a hook. And I don't know if that is good or bad because I feel like one of the things you're going to do if you want to be a a smaller event that aspires to to compete with the UFC is the worst thing I feel like you can look like is a slightly shittier version version of what is already offered by the UFC. Yeah. Which is kind of what I always felt about Strikeforce before uh, the UFC bought them. So I do feel like take, you know, Invicta, for example, who is offering a product at this point that the UFC is not currently offering. And offering it to anybody with a computer. Yeah, for free. And I do feel like that's a slightly better, uh, you know, game plan in a way just because, and I don't know if it's just because it's female fighting or what, but like, think of the attention that we pay to Invicta FC that we would not ordinarily pay to Resurrection Fighting Alliance 4. It also has the advantage, Invicta does, of operating out of Kansas City where it's had all its events um, rather than trying to go into the UFC's backyard and promote shows uh, to a, a, an audience that sees a lot of MMA as it is. And one of the things, and I think it's a smart, that, that Shannon Nat told me when I asked her why they have hold, held all their events in Kansas City is she said that she wanted to, to stay in one venue to get an idea of what the real costs are of putting on an event. Like I know from experience working for the IFL, when they just kind of jumped into the business and traveled all over the place at all these different arenas, um, they, you know, it's a situation where you don't know what you don't know yet. Uh, and you get fleeced on a lot of things uh, if you don't know. Uh, and so I, I think that's a smart way for a promoter to do is to set up and make some area that's not getting a lot of attention from, from the big time, make that your home base, uh, build kind of a, a fan base there rather than having to start all over every time you have a show in a new market. Yeah. And speaking of, of the, the, Fight League that is probably the closest to, uh, to, you know, competing with the UFC. Bellator has a show this weekend. Didn't even mention it. A uh, bunch of guys fighting on the Bellator card. I don't, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of them, unless you've been paying attention to the, this season of Bellator tournaments. But to, uh, to rival the UFC, it really is going to take, I think, at this point, someone with really, really deep pockets 
And that would be someone like Viacom who would have to really, really throw the weight of a lot of money and a big budget behind like doing it for real and almost doing it with the same zeal that the Fertitas did it over the years where they were just said it, where they just basically said, Hey, we're going to go really, really in debt on this thing and hope to make our money back on the back end. Yeah. Which is a risky proposition, especially if you look at what's happened to some of the people who came before you. That's right. Don't pay Tim Sylvia $800,000. That's Uh, the last I'll say on that. Speaking of uh, leagues like Invicta coming up in round number two, we are going to discuss three round three. Oh, that's right. This is round two. See five rounds, man. I'm already out of the listener mail was actually around. I'm already out of it. It's okay. It's an adjustment process. Uh, coming up in round three, we will talk about uh, the UFC taking on a women's division, which seems like it's getting closer and closer to actually happening. And that discussion starts now. Round three. Ben, the latest thing we've heard from... UFC President Dana White about the possibility of bringing a female division to the octagon came this week when he said, it's absolutely going to happen. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen a year from now. The point is, I'm committed to this. Uh, now, to me, this seems like kind of the same line that he's been saying for the past past few months. Um, I guess this brings it one step closer to fruition. Um, and it seems like good news, frankly, for uh, female fighters everywhere because you know, you can't just go and make a UFC division out of Ronda Rousey alone, right. or can you? That's the thing. And I think that that's what is different about this quote, uh, why this seems different, is because before, the closest Dana White would come to, to saying that that would happen was, hey, I could see Ronda Rousey fighting in the UFC, or Ronda Rousey and Chris Cyborg, you know, that would be a huge fight that, that I could see happening. Uh, he had never, I think, gone on and said a women's division. Hey, that's something. Cause, and, and that is the difference here. When he says, I'm committed to this, that's what I wonder. What's the this? Is the this Ronda Rousey or is the this women's fighting? Yeah, well, you would think that the UFC would at least be smart enough to know that it's incredibly dangerous to, to build an entire division or to stake a large percentage of your business on one individual. Unless you're blinded by luscious blonde locks. Well, that a winning you, smile. You said it, not me. Uh, you know, we've seen other organizations in the past make this mistake. Strike Force, to a certain extent, did it with Fedor. Uh, Elite XC did it with uh, Kimbo Slice. Uh, you know, Strike Force, you could charge, has done it with Gina Carano and with Chris Santos. Um, and I think it would be dangerous for the UFC to try to build an entire women's division around Ronda Rousey because while everything that we've seen from her thus far definitely makes her look like the genuine article, uh, she's also only had six professional MMA fights and has been in the cage for about seven minutes and 40 seconds combined. True. And half of that came during the one fight against Misha Tate. Uh, so while you know everything appears to be on the up and up with her, we, we don't know what happens to her, you know, if she has to go past the first round. We don't know what happens to her if she can't get the takedown. We don't know what happens to her if she winds up on the ground with someone that she can't, you know, just instantly armbar in the first round. Yeah. So uh, it's it would be dangerous, I think, to build an entire division around one person because what if she loses? Well, yeah, obviously. and you just can't keep, uh, I mean, it, you can't be a thing where it's Ronda Rousey versus whoever Ronda Rousey is fighting this this time. You, you won't be able to sustain interest in women's MMA uh, on, in the UFC that way. What could happen is that Ronda Rousey could be the Trojan horse that gets women's MMA 
uh, into the UFC. It could be the thing that, you know, she's the one who gets noticed by Dana White. And, you know, she is a promoter's dream in a lot of ways when you think about it. Maybe she gets in there, it gets him to, to change his mind about it. Uh, and then he starts looking at the lower weight classes, you know, 125 and below, where there's just a lot more female fighters. Uh, and you know maybe then it gets the ball rolling, so it wouldn't be all bad. To me, though, the question is, when before Dana White's objection was that there aren't enough, there, there isn't enough top-tier talent in women's MMA, you know, that hasn't changed. If that was your position a year ago, that should still be your position now. And it's not like we've seen a flood of really great female fighters come in that, that change that. I mean, it's still kind of Ronda Rousey and everybody else at 135, uh, the other divisions are still, you know, just as competitive. You know, you got like Sarah McMahon around. You got some people. You got Sheena Baszler. There, there are some fights you can make there, but that would have been true, you know, six or eight months ago. So what I wonder is, you know, why now does he feel like it can happen if he didn't? If, if his objection before was a lack of depth? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously a lot of it, regardless of what they would say about it, has to do with Rousey's marketability. Um, she's almost the biggest star that they have in a lot of ways because, you know, she's on, she's in ESPN, the magazine and she's all over the media. Uh, even though she's never even fought for the company, she's very high profile. I think, you know, just, just from a promoter standpoint and a businessman standpoint, the guys who run the UFC probably looked at her and said, wow, this, you know, this could be a really big deal for us. Um, and so I think, yeah, obviously that's kind of what changed their mind more than some sort of like, uh, watershed moment where they realized that there's enough talent to make a division out of just, you know, f- female fighters. Although I would say that I think that the existence of Invicta has proved that it can be done and that, you know, they've put on a couple few uh, pretty good shows. Good little ob- shows. Obviously in <laughs> in multiple weight classes, but I think if you're just going to do 135, if you're the UFC, which I think is probably where they would look to start from, uh, you do you do have enough talent to get that going. Although I wonder in the early going, if I'm a female fighter, and they call me in to fight Ronda Rousey if I'm, you know, Sarah McMahon or Shayna Baszler, whoever. I wonder if I think to myself, oh, God, it might be better off for everybody if Ronda just wins this one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you go in there, you want to beat her, you want to become the champion. But if you do that, what if the UFC is just like, hey, you know what? This isn't really worth it. Yeah. Thanks for turning out, guys. It also has to be something where, yeah, the, the UFC shows that it is committed to this and not something where uh, if – you know, Ronda Rousey uses this opportunity to get on TV and then gets an offer to go do movies. Uh, you know, she starts to think, well, hey, this women's MMA thing isn't going to be lucrative for very long. I better go and do movies while I can. I think that's the kind of the problem to some degree with women's MMA in general is that it's a if you build it, they will come kind of scenario where you can complain that, hey, uh, there aren't enough good female fighters around. Um, and therefore, that's why we're not willing to promote them and pay them. But then you're saying, like, hey, man, why aren't there more people signing up to do this thing that results in almost zero money uh, and gets them injured and still we regard them as, you know, not good enough for the big leagues? I can't understand why more women aren't signing up for that. So, I mean, I think it could be a thing where if the UFC commits itself to it and if Ronda Rousey is the one to get that rolling, hey, fine, um, but you you put on a few female fights and suddenly maybe you get athletes from other sports, uh, Olympic level athletes uh, from, from other women's sports to decide this is worth it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's pretty much what happens with men's MMA is you get a few wrestlers who had nothing else better to do. They realize they can make a little bit of money. Other people see them doing that and think, well, hey, I, I now there's something to do. I, I can give that a shot. 
I don't see any reason why that couldn't work if the UFC is actually committed to doing it and not just committed to you know putting Ronda Rousey on TV by any means necessary. Yeah, and I don't know if I would think of Rousey as, for lack of a better term, a Carano. You know, like I don't know if she's, what are you saying? I, she well, can't do movies. That's what you're saying. No, no, that's not what I meant you at all. Question you question her acting skills. No, that's that's not what I meant at all. I meant I would say that you know those of us who who were paying real close attention. Probably could have told you that the first time Gina Carano got her ass kicked really bad, she was probably going to go do movies and, and not come back. Uh, and I don't know if I have the, if I get that same vibe off Ronda Rousey. She seems more like uh, like a like a fighter. I don't know for life, but it, she, it seems more uh, reasonable to me to, to think that she would spend the next four or five years in the sport, at which point she's only going to be twenty nine, thirty. Are you calling Gina Carano a pussy? That's not what I said. Uh, That's what I heard. <laughs> well, I mean, look at the facts, man. Carano had one tough fight against uh, Cyborg Santos. and then, Who was probably on performance-enhancing drugs, but go on. Uh, you know what I'm hearing from you is a lot of uh, Gina Carano apology. <laughs> I'm just not willing to question the fighting spirit of any woman, especially who becomes a, a professional mixed martial arts fighter, because you don't do that because you think, like, well, here's a great career opportunity. Like you do, like it. That makes even less sense than doing it as a man, you know. To think that this is something where I'm going to become rich and famous at. Like I don't, I just don't think that that is going on. I think there's way less of that in women's MMA than there is in men's MMA. I think there's more dudes who are like, I'm going to get a few tattoos and a faux hawk, and then you know, pick up girls at the bar by saying I'm an MMA fighter. I don't think there are any women going, I'm going to make a lot of money and be famous. by you know being the next Gina Carano because it's so rare that it happens. So I'm not going to question Gina Carano. I'm not going to sit here and call Gina Carano a pussy. But if you want to, <laughs> uh, you know, hey, you got your own microphone for a reason. I, I hear what you're saying, and and it's it sounds good. I I just don't know if I would be so quick to if I were you to put put the full weight of my Gina Carano fandom out there for everyone to see. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, I don't think you have to be a genius to see what happened with the career. You know, but here's the thing. If you're Gina Carano, are you second-guessing Gina Carano's career choice there? You think she should have stuck around to see what, what Strike Force is going to do for her? No, or? she absolutely made the right choice, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I don't know. The, the climate now, you could argue, is, is a little different. Uh, it's some of the ice is melting there for, for women's MMA, and, and that's a good thing all around. Uh, I just hope that if the UFC is going to get into it, which I think it should, I think women's MMA is very promotable and that uh, more people than a lot of people assume will actually be into it once they give it a chance. Uh, I think if the UFC gets all the way into it rather than just trying to, you know, do a couple one-off fights here or there, uh, I think it could be big. Well, coming up in round four, we are going to talk about the immediate future of the heavyweight division and all the craziness that's going on there. Perhaps Ben Folks will find an opportunity to make more apologies for Gina Carano. Well, perhaps Chad Dennis will just call every fighter a pussy. <laughs> I guess you'll have to stick just around until round the spirit four and the heart. to find out, which starts now. Round four. Ben, we would be remiss if we didn't mention this week that this weekend was supposed to be highlighted by the Strike Force show that was to be main evented by Daniel Cormier against Frank Mir, but then Frank Mir got injured, and eventually we decided to pull the plug on the whole event. Yeah, just fuck it. And, uh, you know, with Alistair Overeem still suspended and uh, 
we're going to go about seven months, I think, in between UFC heavyweight title defenses before Junior Dos Santos and Cain Velasquez uh, finally get the chance to do it again, brother, on uh, December 29th, I believe, at UFC yes. 155. Uh, if you're Daniel Cormier and a guy who, frankly, brought a lot of the, the sizzle to the heavyweight division over the last few months just because your trials and tribulations were sort of the hot topic with the UFC heavyweight championship on hold. How worried are you at this point that you are 33 years old and, and time is ticking away when you don't really know what your future will hold? You know, I, I know Daniel Cormier well enough to know that he is definitely not the kind of guy to worry about it as much as I would if I were him, because I would take that same view of it. I mean, if I were Daniel Cormier, here's the point where I fake my own death in a boat explosion uh, and then I come back as you know some kind of mysterious alter ego, new name, fake social security card, and get a UFC contract and just go in there and start taking it to people. Maybe grow a beard. Yeah, you grow a beard, uh, you know, an eye patch or something. No one will ever know. You know, they might suspect, but who will be able to prove it? Daniel Cormier died in that boat explosion, man. Everybody knows that. <laughs> uh, we saw him get on that boat and then boom. No more Daniel Cormier. So when Canyon Dormier <laughs> comes to the UFC for the first time, I don't know if you feel like I do that watching him potentially fight for the UFC heavyweight title is actually sort of more interesting than than what we have on our hands now, just because we've already seen, you know, Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos do it once, whether or not, you know, they're kind of dueling knee injuries uh, affected that fight enough to make this second one a whole new uh, ball of wax is maybe a different conversation and perhaps one we could even have during this round. You know, I, I mean, I am interested to see them do it again, brother. I am too. I am too, because I do think that their knee injuries probably had, you know, maybe more than either of them would admit had a bearing on on how that first fight went. Well, it also, Cain uh, Velasquez was just coming off of uh, shoulder surgery, and I will even have an article out this week uh, where I talk about kind of the... Uh, take a more uh, a broader view of some of those issues that can affect a fighter going in there. But in it, uh, Cain Velasquez will talk about how much uh, coming off of that soldier, shoulder surgery uh, affected him. Um, but yeah, no, I think there were enough variables in that. And it was that Fox fight where it was kind of implied by the UFC, yeah. hey, you can't pull out of this one. Right. Don't care how hurt you are. But yeah, as you said, Junior had a knee injury and thought, hey, I need to end this quick. But with heavyweights, there's always that chance that it could end really quickly. So who knows how much that, that affected them. I am interested to see that again just so we can move on from there. Um, but I, I do think still that, you know, you got Alistair Overeem waiting around um, with God knows what and hit, running through his bloodstream. Uh, and then, you know, the possibility of finally resolving this strike force situation and getting Daniel Cormier over there. Uh, I think there's a lot to look forward to in, in the heavyweight division. Might as well do it again as long as Alistair Overeem's out and Daniel Cormier is not really available. Yeah, it's going to be a good fight. I, I'm looking forward to it. But if... Uh... If Dana White walked up to us and offered him offered us his job, it's a trap. <laughs> aside from it being a trap, and I had the choice to make, well, I could have Dos Santos fight uh, Velasquez again, or have him fight Daniel Cormier. I would probably elect to have him fight Daniel Cormier. I, th I think that that you know is the is the most interesting, potentially clean matchup in the <laughs> two hundred sixty five pound division. Um, uh, is the potentially before we move on, is the potentially clean aspect of it the only reason why you don't you, you say you'd rather see Dos Santos Cormier and not uh, Dos Santos Overeem? Well, we've talked about this. We've we talked have. about this on the podcast, and it's a real moral quandary, I think, <laughs> yeah. for the both of us yeah. because 
Because uh, you want to see that fight. You do want to see it because Alistair Overeem is such a just murderer. And uh, obviously a, a gargantuan man who, who has, has, you know, for all intents and purposes, looked like the biggest potential obstacle in the way of Junior Dos Santos, at least in the UFC right now. But, you know, the, the, there's a major part of me that thinks, is it a mistake for the UFC to let him fight for the heavyweight title just coming off this suspension? Because as far as the lamestream media is concerned, the UFC heavyweight champion is still sort of the most high profile figure that you can have in that company. At and least also, that was true when Brock was the champion. Yeah. And so does it create this situation where it could be a potential problem for the UFC if your heavyweight champion is a guy that a lot of people think has been on steroids for years. Yeah. Well, and also when you contrast it with uh, Junior Dos Santos, who we have reason to think is clean uh, and and you, you got to feel for the guy because he can't fucking get away from testosterone. Right. After Overeem got pulled from that fight, then he has to fight Frank Mir, who we find out later has a therapeutic use exemption. Now, I asked uh, Junior Dos Santos about this when I talked to him recently. Here's his, his quote, uh, which, again, in its positive simplicity, uh, in the typical Junior Dos Santos fashion, just kind of breaks your fucking heart a little bit. His quote on that, uh, on testosterone use in general, I think it's not good for the sport. All the people who use those performance-enhancing drugs, it's not good for them, and it's not good for the sport. I believe so much in myself. I believe I can, I, I can win the fight anyway, but I think people want to know who's the real champion, not a fake champion. I am the real champion. I can say that I'm a clean fighter, and I'll always be ready to fight anyone. Now, God bless his heart there. Uh, that sounds like a guy who used to sell ice cream on the street to, yeah, to support his family. You know, and, you're, and you kind of you want the... It's like... You want the world to be as good as Junior Dos Santos believes it can be. <laughs> you know, you don't want him to have to. And, and it's a, a good point. I think people do want to know who's the real champion. I don't think people want to know who's the best dude on testosterone. Uh, and so it is that moral quandary because you're like, okay, fairness-wise and like ethics-wise, what could Alistair Overeem do like, how long does he have to fight and pass drug tests to convince you that he's clean rather than that he's just got better at passing the drug tests? Because remember, he passed he passed drug tests before in his career. It was this surprise one that nabbed right, him. Right, yeah, the first surprise one <laughs> yes. nabbed him. I mean, I think, well, I think that we can say with a high degree of certainty that when Overeem comes back and he fights the winner of this Dos Santos-Velasquez rematch, the at least the company line or the, you know, the reality that, that the promoter is going to try to present to you is, Hey, as long as he tests, tests clean, yeah. everything's on the up and up. I think that the reality of the situation in terms of Alistair Overeem's public relations problem is far more dire. I think that he will have to test clean for fights and fights and fights and, and maybe years and years. And maybe, you know, for all intents and purposes, we'll never escape this, uh, public perception of him as a guy who uses performance enhancing drugs. And that's just me being honest about it. I think yeah. that, that well, that's I mean, the state of affairs. For do you him. think that if he just uh, passes, you know, the fight night drug testing stuff, fight week drug testing, I mean, does that mean anything to you at this point? Because it no. means very little to me. Yeah, no, we talked about this last week. It's, you know, we've we've heard it said that it's not a drug test, it's an IQ test when they yeah. tell you exactly when you're going to have to take the test and what you're going to be tested for. Now, I would think that... Uh, depending on where they have that fight that the athletic if it's in Nevada you would certainly think that the the athletic commission would step things up a little bit in terms of uh out of competition testing and maybe a couple of more 
surprise tests. So you maybe, know, maybe even you'd love to see them do a carbon isotope ratio test to uh, determine if the presence of synthetic testosterone rather than just if his levels are outrageously high. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see where that fight is contested. Very interesting. Uh, you know, whether or not it's going to be in Las Vegas or Abu Dhabi, you know? <laughs> or Macau. Yeah. You do anything you want in Macau. But let's pretend... Stuff your gloves with fireworks. That's l- fine. Let's forecast that they do have that fight, and let's pretend, just for argument's sake, that Overeem comes out, knocks Junior Dos Santos out in the first round. What emotion does that stir in you, uh, you know, as you see it? Sadness. Yeah, I agree. Sadness Despair. and, Despair. Like, yeah. A little it, bit of ennui. And then how are you supposed to deal with that moving forward in terms of how we all look at the heavyweight division? Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I guess it would, like, maybe I could see if Overeem signed up for one of the, like, voluntary out-of-competition testing, whether it was Vada or USADA or something, if he really got aggressive about trying to prove that he was competing clean. It would not convince me that he had always competed clean, but it might at least convince me that he was doing it now. Um, you know, that, I think, is possible. If he if he just kept toeing the line and uh, did whatever he had to do to get along with the state athletic commissions, then it would just convince me that he had gotten better at doing that uh, through trial and error. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting uh, storyline to keep track of, you know, moving into 2013, if that does in fact happen, because it'll be interesting to see how the UFC responds to that. If there is a great deal of questioning and, 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 you know, criticism and people constantly asking questions about Overeem moving forward, you know, historically, that's not the kind of thing that the UFC has, uh, you know, responded really welcoming. You know, they haven't they haven't historically handled that in a in a in a soft way or yeah. in a even a receptive way. Hey, it's the government's job. That's government true. does that drug testing. That's true. Unless state athletic commissions are no more. Yeah. As we move into 2013. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that is it uh, for round number four. We'll be back with more of your questions in the last round today. Round Bring it five. home. That starts right now. Then, co-main event podcast listener Travis Cruder brings us our first question for round number five today, and it is, if each of you could co-author the autobiography of one MMA fighter, who would it be? Huh, good question. First of all, uh, I would be really reluctant to do it, um, just because I- I've been approached a couple times by a couple different people who said, hey, would you want to, you know, ghostwrite somebody's autobiography, or do that kind of thing. Um, and my, my response was always like, well, what does it pay? And then they were like, yeah, okay. We see where your head's at. <laughs> we'll go talk to somebody else. Um, so yeah, uh, doesn't seem like a great, like a thing I'd really jump at, uh, unless it was somebody really, really intriguing. Um, you know, if we could get past some of the language barriers, I think it would be really fun to do Vanderlei Silva. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm sure he'd have some awesome stories. Uh, of course, Don Fry always occupies a special place in my heart. 
Um, the problem is, though, when you're writing the dude's autobiography and taking it from his perspective, I'm reminded of what uh, W.C. Hines said was his issue when uh, Sugar Ray Robinson's people were trying to get him to write a autobiography or biography or whatever you want to call it for Sugar Ray Robinson. And it was after Sugar Ray Robinson was retired and there were some questions about you know his war record, whether he had kind of dodged service there. And he met with Sugar Ray Robinson and his, his people in a hotel bar and said, okay, if we're going to do this, you would have to be honest with me about what happened with the war record stuff. And Sugar Ray Robinson gave some kind of not quite uh, forthcoming answer about it. And W.C. Hines said, and I told him, you know, I just don't think you're telling me the truth. I don't think you're really, really, really willing to open up about this. So I'm not going to do it. And he said in his version of events that Sugar Ray Robinson said, that's okay, man. I understand. To which W.C. Hines replied in his writing about it years later, I don't think he did, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, that would always be an issue, I think, is how do you get them to really be honest with you and tell the stuff they might not want to tell so that it feels like it's worth doing. Right. Get into just a, a puff piece. An Al Stump, Ty Cobb type situation. Yeah. I tell you what. I don't know if I'd be interested in writing a fighter autobiography, but what I would be interested in writing would be a speculative fiction novel. Uh Uh-oh. Because as we all know, on December 7th, 1996. I thought it was going to Pearl Harbor there for a second. One Don Fry championed over David Lee Tank Abbott (laughs) to win the final of the Ultimate Ultimate Tournament. What my novel predisposes is <laughs> maybe he didn't. I love a novel that presupposes things. I, I, I mean, uh, so your speculative fiction would be an alternate universe in which Tank Abbott uh, rises to, to and, and drapes himself in UFC glory. That's correct. Reigns for years atop the heavyweight division, perhaps. That's correct. You know, the money, the broads, the liquor, <laughs> and you know, the hotel Tank suites, Abbott. the Tank private Abbott jets. Not, he's not meeting any women. He's only meeting broads. That's right. Only meeting broads. You know, a lot of people forget how goddamn close Tank Abbott came to actually winning that fight. <laughs> if you go back and watch it, he is kicking the shit out of Don Fry, and then he falls down. Slips on a banana peel. Falls over. Anyway, question number two the, for this round comes from Brandon Arteels or Arteles or Arteles. He didn't send us a pronunciation guide. So yeah, well, that's on go. him. He, he ought to know how badly you will fuck up somebody's name. Brandon asks, could you argue marijuana is a PED for a fighter as high strung as Nick Diaz? Uh, the calming effect THC has is a PH, uh, PED. A lot of initials going on in there. You this know, was your question. You wanted to answer yeah, this one. Because this I, I hear this one a lot, especially uh, and I hear it in this vein where it's like, isn't it a PED for Nick Diaz? <laughs> like not that it's a, it's really hard to argue that it's a PED in general. Um, but people are like, well, look, it make if it makes Nick Diaz halfway sane enough to get through training camp, isn't that then enhancing his performance? And the answer is, well, sort of, but it's not anything that gives him an unfair advantage over another opponent. It's not anything that I think puts his opponent uh, in any greater risk uh, when you fight Nick Diaz. I, I think it's one of those things where I would be fine if every fighter used it in his training camp. I mean, obviously they should not go into the fight uh, with it, but it's it's unfair to test for it in the sense that it has such a long time of staying in your system and such a short time of being active. Um, so that even if it w- did help you to be on it, uh, it would be really hard for you to go in there and be on it during the fight, 
right? I mean, I think we could all agree that you cannot fight high, but you can train high if you so choose. Like, I think that would be fine. I'd be fine extending that across the board. I don't think it's this thing like with testosterone where then we just get into like, you know, who's got the best chemistry set. Uh, I, I don't think you can just say just because it makes a guy completely not fucked up the way he would be normally that therefore it is a PED. I'm just going to leave that one for you and Joe Rogan because I couldn't possibly care any less. You're a fascist. That's why. Question number three for this round comes from Danny who asks on a scale of one to eight bananas, eight (laughs) bananas being turning away from the TV because you can't bear to watch. What are you guys thinking while watching a fighter's corner, desperately trying to strap a t-shirt shaped billboard onto their fighter post fight? Can we measure the success of a of the UFC on a fighter's endorsement base actions post fight? For example, John Jones' corner forcibly wrapping his fingers around an energy drink, much to his parent dis- apparent disgust, contrasts <laughs> wildly with Roger Federer strapping on a nice Rolex watch. Yeah, the John Jones energy drink one that was like a that was like a six banana or maybe a six and a half bananas. Yeah, that was pretty rough, and it calls into question like I know that the 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 general line has been now that he has this nike sponsorship he must be raking in the dough but if you were making that much money off your nike sponsorship like maybe don't do the energy drink one especially (laughs) if your stated goal is to quote unquote keep it clean and classy or whatever with your sponsorships yeah i mean the thing that i always wonder about is when you're trying to they're trying to yank that t-shirt down on him and, and throw a hat on him and make sure we see and there's like you know four different sponsors on a bunch of them uh, and I did a story on talking to sponsors and, and managers about that side of it uh, a while back. And a lot of the sponsors, the question I had for them was, how do you know if you're getting your money back on this investment? And the answer that all of them had in one form or another was basically, yeah, we really don't. Or you know, their metric, if they thought they had a metric for figuring it out, uh, they either, uh, it was a really narrow kind of like how many st- how many training masks did we sell at the week after the fight? Or it was like some like Ranger up or somebody who was just like, yeah, we're never going to make back in direct sales. What we give a guy to wear our t-shirts. Um, and that's just that part of the business. So it is always a weird thing. You wonder if these companies, uh, I mean, they ought to have seen enough MMA that they know what they're getting into, that they know that always, that situation, you got that crumpled T-shirt. Sometimes have to be pulled off a corner man because they don't know what happened to the original T-shirt that the fighter came out with, and then you got a corner man trying to hide off camera with no shirt on. Yeah, that's always a fun one. Uh, yeah, it just seems like there are so many ways that the spy- the fighter sponsorship T-shirt slash baseball cap uh, thing can go wrong. Yeah. You know, it's and, and you, so few I, ways it can go right. Yeah, so few ways it can go right. I just, I always wonder about that exact thing that you just said. Was man, how much does it cost to sponsor this fighter, and how would you ever know as a company if you were getting any kind of return on that investment at all? Uh, so that always kind of like makes me wonder why you would ever even do it kind of, unless you had a, like a vested interest in the sport, like maybe Ranger up does to, you know, that you want to support these guys, you know, uh, regardless of, of whether or not you make that money back. I think it's like, if you're like a tap out or somebody or somebody who's trying to be the next tap out where your whole uh, business model rests on selling these t-shirts to the kind of people who attend and watch and buy pay-per-views of MMA events, then you have to be there. 
you know, that's your only hope for getting them to know who you are. So you, you got to be at the event, even if it costs you a lot at the beginning. Yeah, I would think that you would almost have better luck becoming the next UFC at this point than becoming the next <laughs> tap out. Because yeah, think of how a, many people have tried to do it. And how many KTFO shirts do you have yeah. somewhere in your, in your closet? <laughs> oh, I'm, no, I'm wearing KTFO underwear right now. <laughs> Decked out. head. I'm to lying. Toe. I'm not wearing underwear. In, oh God. Uh, the, the fourth question for, th- for this round comes from Beard Hero Ben. Huh. I don't know what that means, but uh, he asks, I've just read an article by Dave Meltzer detailing the UFC's expansion plans for the foreseeable future. The gist of it was to have more market-specific events for Europe, Asia, Brazil, etc. Do you think this will, A, make it harder for those who try to watch every event to follow the UFC, and B, eventually lead to such tediousness as having regional champions like UFC Brazilian welterweight champion? I mean, if it's number A, you're probably already having a hard time, right? Yeah. Well, and, you know, that's kind of, I, I read that article by, by Dave Meltzer, and that's, my kind of thought was, yeah, it seems like we already are seeing this, like, we've already seen it, and it's not, like, that's something that's kind of germane to the fight business, is that, you know, you go to Sweden, you got to put a bunch of Swedes on the card. Yeah. You know, you go to Cleveland, let's see if you can get some Cleveland dudes out there, and Strikeforce would always do it with their uh, prelims. Or instead of it being like guys that were trying to scout for serious up and coming positions, right. it is always just like, well, we're in Cincinnati, so uh, we'll get the dudes who can sell tickets to their friends at their gym in Cincinnati. Yeah, uh, and even for, if nobody else has ever heard of them. And for an organization that was as shallow as Strikeforce was at that point, I always thought that that was actually kind of like uncharacteristically shrewd of them. Yeah, it sold because, tickets. Yeah, you know I mean, not to. Not to like waste the televised fights on on, on guys that w- weren't going to have a future with the company, but to sign local talent to bring in people for the live gate. I thought, you know, one of the few things when you look back, you could probably say maybe Strikeforce did that right. But I mean, you see it all, like, you know, they go to Brazil, you pack the car with a bunch of Brazilians, uh, ideally Brazilians versus Americans whenever you can. And yeah, I mean, when the, the UFC was in Rio, Paulo Tiago walks out. And gets a huge, huge response from the audience, you know, where he is not going to get that in the U.S. And so, I mean, that's just always going to be part of it. You see him going to to China and they're like, well, what do we got? Kung Lee's Asian. Like, let's let's put him in the main event. You know, that was one that Dana White was looking at as soon as Kung Lee got finished with his fight against Patrick Cote at UFC 148. And he was in a wheelchair at the press conference. And Dana White was already talking about, well, we want to put him on that, that China card. Um, and you got to think they're, they're doing it because they figure like, well, here's someone that the Chinese fans can be like, well, if I have to choose between him and uh, the dude who looks like, uh, Ace Ventura, I guess, you know, even though neither one of them are Chinese, I guess it's the closest that they can come up with to, you know, a Homer, uh, for that event. So that just makes sense that you'll do that wherever you go. As far as will it lead to regional champs? Uh, that could be a hilarious pro wrestling style <laughs> situation. You know, the, the intercontinental champ is right around the corner there. I hope so. I hope that there's a Northwest heavyweight champion that I can support someday. <laughs> anyway, that's probably going to do it this week for the co-main event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. Hit us up at our website, comaineventpodcast.com, and click the handy link that says email the podcast. You and your question could be featured on a future episode of the CME. Better said that pronunciation guide. As for now, that's it. We're done. We're out. So Tank Abbott beats Don Fry at the ultimate, ultimate. Okay. Goes on to defeat, I don't know, Tim Sylvia at UFC 49 yeah. or whatever. Maybe he also uh, foils an assassination. Yeah, I don't mean that. He's probably already done that.